Yes, it does. Because one thing you don't need in traditional strength training is co uh, co-contractions, right? Uh, because uh, it's the muscle against the, the resistance, and that is where the, the equilibrium comes from. Where if you look in explosive sports, the peripheral motor control is based on properties of muscles, but they need to be activated, and that can only be activated by co-contractions prior to their, the moment they have to correct things. So if I run, I have typically swing leg retraction, in the swing leg retraction, I build up the tension in all the muscles. And then when the ground hits the foot, then these muscles can correct errors, and that's peripheral control. Hello, and welcome to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. Make sure, if you haven't already, to subscribe to my YouTube channel to receive a notification and never miss a live interview. I hope you enjoyed this interview, and please share with a friend or a teammate that you think will value this episode. Let's go. Hello and welcome back to the Prepare Like a Pro live chat show. My name is Jack McLean. I'm your host and today my guest is Fred Bosch. We'll be discussing how to unlock athletic potential and how to develop a coordinated, adaptable athlete. So whether you're a high performance coach, strength and conditioning coach, or even athletes, make sure to get your notepad out. And if you're tuning in live, feel free to send through your questions by hitting the comments section below and I'm sure we'll find some time later on in the show but welcome Franz really looking forward to our chat mate thank you for joining us early in the morning over in your world yeah well thank you for having me it's early but that's all mistakes will be down to being too early <laughs> we've given you an excuse <laughs> for those which I think there won't be too many but for those that aren't aware of your background and your work for us do you mind um, providing a bit of a background in how you got into the industry of performance sport what you did prior to that, but also some consultancy jobs that you've done in elite sport as well. Yeah, I started out as a PE teacher. Very quickly found out that I don't like it. So did that for a couple of years. Then I became a an artist, a painter. Did that for two decades, something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, found out that I didn't like the art world at all. And but. At the same time, I was already coaching athletes. From being an artist, I became a medical illustrator to make a living. And one day, a publisher said, listen, you know more about it than these clones. Why don't you write the books yourself? So I wrote some books. From that, started teaching at University for Applied Science and Sports. Anatomy, strength training, motor learning, motor control, those kind of topics. Started consulting. From that, with mainly in rugby, started with rugby first, England national team, then Wales, then Japan. From there, I've done all kinds of different sports as a consultant. I wrote two other books, and here I am, wife. Yeah. Yeah. And along your way, you have been some strong influences that have sort of helped, I guess, shape your sort of philosophy, perhaps early days. Yeah, well, obviously, my main interest is, is what the scientific background of it is, what it is. And then and the, the real big change in thinking actually stemmed from uh, learning about complex systems and dynamic systems and ecological dynamics and those kind of things, which is fundamentally different from any classic approach there is. 
And from that, obviously, you stumble into all kinds of consequences it has for how you do, how you should look at, at human development and movement and sports and things like that. So that would be the biggest influence or the biggest orientation that I, that I got. And looking at it, I saw that there was hardly anything there that translated all these complex theories to anything that could be applied. So that's what I try to do in, 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 in my work. I also had a very keen interest in, in anatomy. You know, I remember when I was 17 or 18, when he was studying, we had an anatomy classes and they said, listen, this is an IT band. It's as strong as, as, as you can believe it. You know, so you can hang a truck from it, but it's only there to stabilize the knee a little bit. And I thought that cannot be right, right? If a truck can hang from it, the truck will hang from it. So mm-hmm. I've always been very interested in, in what the consequences were for from the anatomy that I saw in front of me. And I started to combine those things. It's probably what I did my work. And that curiosity when you were 17, was that out of just pure passion and interest for movement or was there a, a thinking that you were you know, going to help athletes perform at the highest level? What, uh, you know, were you a coach? Would you identify as a coach quite early on or was it more just something you were quite fascinated in? Uh, mainly it was it was a scientific kind of uh, interest. Uh-huh. Interested in, in, in anything that has to do with biology and Obviously, when I was studying, anatomy was a, a very important topic in there. And I've always been fascinated by how that would work and why it would be like the way it is. So mm-hmm. that would be starting point. And I only started coaching, I think, four years after I graduated, five years after. And obviously, it took a long time before I could put that interest and that knowledge that I'd gradually gained into into practical application yeah. sure yeah and the there was no specific sort of mentorship or apprenticeship that you had under someone during those early days of, of coaching necessarily it was more just self-discovery and experimenting and learning on the go yeah pathologically self-taught yeah 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 and uh, what about career highlights France like moments that sort of spring front of mind that you're proud of over your career, I'm not. I'm not wired like that. I'm not. Not let's say looking at success and being being uh, proud of that. I'm much more wired in a way that I see what I found very interesting, very mm-hmm. interesting events, and there are positive events that are very interesting, and also very negative events that were very interesting. And I look back at what I learned from those. So just to mention. Let's say one positive, 2015 with Japan Rugby, Eddie Jones and John Pryor, because they put all their money on 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 the card of, of good movement, and uh, took all the consequences it has for training. Right, it was not window dressing or anything like that. It was really the core of what they wanted to do, and then see how that then plots out in uh, in such a squad and and what the effect is on uh, on how they play. That was an interesting experiment as far as I'm concerned. So that was yeah. And that but also negative ones. Like uh, 2004 Olympics, uh, hardly having any, any, any access to, to, to training grounds, to 
what, what have you, medical facilities, go to the Olympics and not having an accreditation to go on a warm-up track, only being able to sit in, in the stadium and coach. So I had an athlete who had to do it all by himself. It was an American athlete and from the U.S., and uh, the U.S. in that respect is fairly stupid. So he sat on the 40-degree centigrade warm-up track for two hours because they sent him to the track an hour too early. Then he came uh, on the field to do his run-up for, it was a high jumper, for his high jump. He ran up twice, cramped both his calves, and that was the end of the Olympics. So that's where I learned that shuffling snow in the winter to beat the Russians in high jump uh, doesn't make any sense and that you need a lot of things in place and uh, a lot of, lot of uh, assets in order to, to get it right. And obviously that's something that I've, I've been looking at things like for, for, for the rest of, of, of my career as well. So, for instance, if you look at the sports team, like a rugby team or an AFL team, the way they're understaffed is absolutely ridiculous, right? Two, one or two S&C coaches for 30 or 40 players doesn't make any sense. Same you see in, in big money sports where they got all the money in the world understaffed like crazy. Mm. Uh, ridiculous. Is there a... <clears throat> I, so, I guess, with Olympic athletes, do you feel like that's closer to where it should be in pro sports where there is a bit more of a one-on-one time when you work or is that more just private consultancy work yeah well obviously it's i don't think if if you're if you're doing a coaching session you have more than three or four athletes it becomes crowd control there's no way around it <laughs> what's the point there yeah that's the way i look at it yeah so about three to four is about the sweet spot for for the coach to have a, a real impact. Yeah, exactly, because you need to have that interaction, you know, to see, you need to see what's going on, and you need to be enough focused on that person in order to know whether you should step in or, you know, you should step back, uh, whether you should mm -hmm. go to the right, what you're doing, and so on and so forth. And with big groups, you don't get that. It's, nobody can do that. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's, how, it's, yeah, it's an interesting point. Team sports that we work with big groups and you know, then and they all well are doing the same thing like sheep. That doesn't make any sense to me at all. Yeah, when there's so much variance between the athletes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you think in that in that I guess when you're thinking, what's the way to change that? Is there any club that you've known where perhaps players invest in? their own private coaches, like in the NBA, I know that you hear of them having their own private coaches. Is that the way forward or is it clubs having bigger soft caps? I think it has to start with educating uh, players. Right? Uh, I've been very disappointed with the number of players who are not studying themselves and they're not studying their sport and they're just doing what they're told and that's it. Right? And I cannot even give you a good extensive answer on uh, what their strong points and weak points are, where they should develop, how they should develop, what kind of properties they they are good at, what kind of components they're not good at, what they need to develop, you know? Loads of them. And they are professional athletes. And I, th I think that comes down to either them being very dumb, you got on the toes as well, 
but also not uh, education of those things not being a, a major part in, in, in what's happening uh, when they're in academies and things like that. So what I've seen is that the best players that I've ever worked with are the ones who can give you the best overview of how they function and, and what works for them and what doesn't work for them. Where the strong points are, where the weak points are, what the work ons are, and so on. Yeah, they're really driving, or they're empowered to drive their development. Sorry, the the athletes should be driving their their development and and. Yeah, they should at least be very active in it and not be passive, just accepting what what's thrown at them, right? Uh, and that obviously is something that that also has a, 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 a another. There's another sign to the coin as well, is that because we have this uh, situation that they are exposed to a lot of coaches who just throw anything at them without trying to figure out what an individual needs, right? And that have one philosophy or one one big selling point that they try to get across and that's it. So what you also see with bit, bit uh, experience players is that they become very reluctant for new influences because it's the next snake oil uh, seller, right? That's <laughs> It's, I think even team sports, there should be a very strong individual component to it. Going back to the 2015 campaign with England Rugby, Eddie Jones, JP, from the very start of you starting your work there, was there, did you have to sort of earn your time with the athletes and that built up over time or were you sort of had that autonomy straight away? Oh, no, not at all. I mean, Eddie Jones had a philosophy that they had to be quicker and more agile on the field than anyone else. And they took all the consequences it, it, it needs to have for that. And JP mm -hmm. as well. I didn't need to fight for my corner at all. I was even much shocked with it quite a bit like they're really, they're really stepping into this, right? Really, really invested. A gamble if you want to really invest in this. Yeah. And at a very consequential way, never uh, say, okay, we do this and um, we need to go to, to something that's a bit more safe or, or we know better or, you know, very much step by step, taking all the consequences of the, of the approach. That was, that, that's why it was such an interesting uh, experience. Yeah. And during that process or, or, or other clubs where you've consulted with the, with the athletes, do you have to sort of measure the progress that the athletes are, are achieving? And if so, how do you like to do that uh, in your line of work? Uh, I see one of the consequences if you uh, work with dynamic systems is that it's not easy to measure, right? Uh -huh. Let's say if you say, okay, we're looking at, at, at running speed. That's one of the first thing that was what John Pryor and, and Eddie Jones said, uh, this is what we look at, right? Then if you look at it from the perspective of dynamic systems, it doesn't make any sense because pure running speed is not in a context, right? And, and it's not the most important thing in, in, in if you want to be fast on the, on the field because in, in a context like a rugby game, a foul game, it's about how you can change your, your shape, your, your body shape when, you, when you're running. It's, it's, how you can go from acceleration to top speed at any given moment, not just that moment at which gives you the overall fastest time, 
there's a lot of other things that are influential. And then if you say, okay, we just look at running speed, you're missing the point of what's really important in the game itself. So mm -hmm. it's very complex than what you should measure, right? And yeah, uh, the closer you want to come to uh, to the reality, the more complex your your measuring tools need to be, and it becomes so complex that that you cannot do it anymore, right? So you uh, kind of you kind of need to accept in a certain way that uh, you are, you cannot put it in numbers. For sure, and the, and I guess the product will will showcase it once. Eddie Jones sees the team playing after a period of time. It's that game speed. Is that the best measure at the end of the day is, is what the athletes are able to do on the field and the feedback they give on how they feel, if they feel that they've got more speed in the context of rugby. And then the coaches, coach's eye as well, it looks faster and they look like a, more of a dominant team. If you, if you, let's say you have somebody with, running with the ball, right? Then you can have a certain speed. But if the speed is such that there's no change of direction possible mm -hmm. in that, that body shape, then that speed doesn't say anything because uh, the opponent knows where we will end up in, in 1.2 seconds from now, right? <laughs> if, and with a little bit lower speed, but in a body shape, which we call an option position, that you can, let's say, have five, six options open of when I go to the left, to the right, to kick or stop or whatever, right? Then... Nobody knows where you will be in 1.2 seconds from now. So it's not just that speed that is giving you a clue about uh, how successful you can be on the field. It's linked to many other things that are very important in order to be successful. So, and how do you measure that, right? It becomes really complicated. Yeah, you can. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I'd say it's fascinating and and. But on the flip side of, so from, from a highlights perspective, you, you mentioned the 2004 Olympics. What, what have been some other, I guess, significant challenges that you've faced over your career and what did you learn from, from those challenges? How did you sort of grow? I think I learned the most from having very frail athletes. So my athletes were injured just like that. Right? They were not robust at all, not the slightest bit. So if you do one session that's wrong, then you have to pay the consequences with injuries, where others you can throw out of a four-story high building and they, you know, just walk away. I've seen a lot of those in, in rugby, right? extremely robust players. But I had very frail player needs, and that's where you learn the trade. And that's something, if you are, let's say, look at it from a bit of a zooming out perspective, you find the best coaches in countries where there's the least talent. It's that simple. Mm -hmm. If you're a coach in the U.S. and you get the talent throwing at you with the buckets, right? You're not becoming a good coach because anyone can coach somebody like Jonathan Edwards or you know those people who who cannot even do anything wrong, right? But if you have very little talent, you you get paid. you got to get it right all the time of what you yeah. get wrong and where you learn the trade. So that's why, for instance. You don't see the best sprint coaches in countries where the best sprinters are. You see them where the B and C level sprinters are. Because anything you do wrong, you're out of, you're out of the equation. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, well, <clears throat> we'll, we'll dive into the, the key topic. In your line of work, you emphasize the importance of training coordination over isolated strength. Do you mind uh, elaborating this approach? 
I guess, for the audience being strength conditioning coaches that might be perhaps following the more sort of traditional model of strength training and conditioning? Well, well, first you have to look at the traditional model and see what the weak point is. The weak point, actually there's two things that are really weak point. The first weak point that I saw that I didn't want is that it's utopian, right? Classic training. Because you find one, let's say, one, one approach with all the details in it that is not just plotting out what the benefits are of the training, but also plotting out what the negatives are. It's not there. They only plot out the positives, and that's utopian. Because the mm-hmm. systems body is such that if you want to improve one thing out of self-protection, it will decrease something else, right? Something else will go backwards. So as long as that is not the case, that they're not very diligent in, in plotting out what the negatives are of classic strength training, they're really missing the point. And the second thing that is, from my point of view, wrong in, in classic training is that they uh, overestimate transfer of training completely. There is no transfer of training that's, that's happening in, in, in the way they plot it out. Let's, let's say start with, with the most stupid thing there is, like biomotor properties, like speed. Those things are not existing. There's no such thing as strength. There's no such thing as speed. It's all, let's say, a manifestation of something very complex, right? Mm-hmm. And that they okay, do strength training so you become stronger, uh, and it will automatically transfer this nonsense. It's not, just not happening. So if you look at training theory, the big problem is that... Uh, Anything that has to do with with transfer training is not well is not well researched or well explained, right? So, for transfer of training, you need specificity, right? Are there big books on specificity? Hardly anything, right? It's just an assumption. Where if you would take it serious, then you would have, have really really big textbooks on specificity. Because as, as when you can, let's say, analyze that in very great detail, then you know if I do something here in an S&C setting, you have a chance that it will show itself over there in the sports setting. And the whole transfer is problem is seen as something magical or something that we take for granted. Uh, that's a big problem. So what I try to do in my books is to try to give a little bit of a of a of a of an idea of what it could be. I mean I have to be very modest on that because what I write down about transfer and specificity is is also still in the dark ages. Let's let's be honest, right? Because we just don't know properly how it works. And I try to make that the centerpiece of how you should think. That's basically the way I look at it from what I've done. And when you're consulting with the, with professional teams that perhaps have, have a bias towards the sort of traditional model, what what are some of the ways that you influence early days, I guess, you know, rather than sort of changing everything at once? Is it mainly the field sessions or is it more in the gym? Is it a bit of both? Is it athletes that are injured with rehab for, and then the main group? Sort of, yeah. Yeah, injury prevention is probably the one that is, and, and, and rehab is probably the ones which is easiest because it's a very confined thing. Mm-hmm. So, and, and then 
the whole team and how what happens in the gym will express itself on the field and those are very long processes to to get implemented and first of all a, a, a staff needs to be willing to go in that direction and then invite you otherwise you got no chance right let's say CEO of a club thinks it's a good idea and they catapult you into a staff that is not interested in it, you've got no chance. Right? Because the difference between that that mentality and that way of thinking and the way of thinking you want to bring to the table is so big that it takes a long time for you to get there. So with, with where we have done this seriously now in a major league baseball team, it's a process of years and heavy investment in, in education of coaches and so on. Yeah. And you mentioned something interesting before where, you know, often we look at the, the positives. So, if, you know, a, a powerlifting program where they're doing your box squat, trap bar, deadlift, bench press, increasing their weights, and then, you know, power with measured with watts perhaps and improving that. What, what would be some of the negative adaptations to that traditional model of strength and power training? as examples that perhaps we're not seeing as coaches or, or, or maybe athletes that are doing those practices might not be aware of the negative effects that are starting to outweigh the positive benefits of that type of training. Yeah, well, one of the, the most interesting things that we came across is when we wrote an article on rate of force development, right? So I wrote it together with Boston Hall and he did all the dirty work. I take all the credits, as it usually is, but he he's done a lot of good work there. And if you look at what's what's out there in classic strength training literature, right, it says that, that high resistance ballistic training is very good for rate of force development. Right. Now, what I said to Bart to Bart said, listen, you have to look to all the articles you can find on uh, rate of force development and training. Right. And what you have to look at is what resistance did they use to measure rate of force development against? So I think he went to 270 articles and there was only yeah, one that men mentioned what resistance they use. And what they typically use is the highest possible resistance you can find, like a mid-thigh mid pull or something, right? And then there's this assumption that rate of force development against a very high resistance tells you something about rate of force development against a very low resistance or no resistance at all. Or like the second step in acceleration, then the resistance from the ground is, is fairly low because it's, it's going on and you already very quickly, right? Uh, accelerating a, uh, tennis, a tennis racket is also very low resistance. And there is no in between rate of force developments against a very high resistance and very low resistance. So there's a lot of assumptions there about being positives from high resistance training that are not based on anything. Actually, there's good reason to assume that if you do a lot of heavy uh, resistance training, that it's very bad for rate of force development against a low resistance. Because if you have a very high resistance and you're doing that quite a bit, right, then or eliminated the, the problem of slack in muscles automatically because of the resistance, and then the body thinks, oh, I can have more slack. And if you have more slack, your rate of force development against a low resistance goes backwards. So that's one of the utopian approaches that I've seen that are maybe fairly technical, but that are absolutely 
Yeah. And that's something else you can see these days, but <laughs> there's way less strength training in athletics than it was 10 or 15 years. Way really? less. Yeah. Yeah. And more explosive plyometrics and speed. We'll focus on those two qualities. Yeah. Acceleration. Yeah. yeah. Body tension and good rate of force development without without having big resistance. Yeah. I also see it in, in they're much uh, less muscular than they were and all those things. Yeah. So yeah. that that's one, as far as I'm concerned, one key example of, of where classic strength training got it completely wrong. Right? Because they're basically thinking utopian that training only has positive effects, but every training you do also has a negative effect. And you have to weigh the positive and the negative in such a way that you end up with something positive. Yeah, if you add it up. And I know it's hard without having context, but does the, let's say you've got an Olympic level sprinter that's preparing for gold medal, they're in the peak shape of their life. Does their, does the, the training for them, for, for a hundred meter sprinter, look more specific than a, I guess a 15 year old that's, still still developing a lot of physical attributes so would you do more general strength training power training sprinting accelerations i guess coordination work like a little bit of everything with the 15 year old whereas with the the specialist would you have more of a specialist approach because the strength training might take away from their their speed and acceleration and at the higher level where at a low level they're going to get some benefits from, yeah. from everything yeah, that's another thing which I, I found to be very utopian in classic training, right? If you look at all the research that's done, it's never been done with elite athletes because they mm. they don't donate their body for something like that, right? Yeah, for sure. With recreational athletes. With recreational athletes, you can do anything and everything works. works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or tell a 15-year-old that he shouldn't eat McDonald's junk food three times a week, he'll be faster as well, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so anything works at that age. And then is it, do you want to have short time gains, right? Or do you want a development that will be beneficial in his, in his 20s? And I'm convinced that if you want to have the development in his 20s prioritized, that at a young age, you also should do a very integrated approach where you don't separate coordination from, from force production, right? And then you get much more of a, a balanced development of an athlete. Yeah. I mean, you can take that, that very short sprint to early success at 17, 18 year old, but then you pay the price when they are 20, 24 years old and, yeah. you know, development stops too early. Yeah. So I don't see much difference there. And also because from a motor point, motor control point of view, we know that the output that you eventually can give is very much depending on the amount of variability that you can handle, right? Uh -huh. Let's say if the, the environment is variable and you are, it's not disturbing you in such a way that you are lose control of your balance, of your movement pattern and, and, and the endpoints you want to reach, then the output will be eventually bigger than when you're very frail in that respect and you cannot handle any variability. Mm -hmm. So the motor control part always is a very, very important part, not just for developing athletes, but also the lead athletes. Yeah, yeah. I, guess, I guess, does it get more important the more elite someone is, or does it just, it's always, 
sort of the same. Does it does it get more important as the as athletes get to the pointy end of their sport and they've and they're looking at yeah, like you said, they've developed. You're not thinking long term; you're more thinking short term. Does the motor control aspect of their training and making sure that everything you're doing is specific to their results of what they want to achieve become more important, or is it sort of stay? Does that philosophy stay the same throughout the process? Things and how things influence each other is is always very important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you one example of which is an anecdotal example, right? I think it was in 1999. I was sitting outside at the um, World Championships Athletics in Seville. Yeah. And I was chatting with a Dutch marathon runner, and he was quite good. He ran 208 or something, right? Which is quite good. And he said to me, well, something that I always do when I want to become in top shape is, and I don't know why it works, but it works. I go to Kenya and there's this path of about a kilometer long and everything in that path is tilted and crooked. So there's not one one step that is the same. So, and I just run up and down that path and automatically I get into top shape, which basically means that if you're closer to a competition, you should not avoid variability, but you actually should embrace variability because that variability will make your 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 technique more robust and and that more robust technique can express in deepening your attractors or whatever you are, you know, if if you're going to dynamic systems. And that will mean that if you're more robust in your attractors, the body is willing to go to a more extreme output. So it's the variability and, and the role of variability is, is and, and the robustness that, that is combined with variability is a, is a very, very important factor that always has to be, let's say, it will let you use. A couple of questions from those tuning in live. Peter Hope's written in, interested if Franz would agree that the emphasis on athletes attaining maximal strength training in traditional gym setting is overemphasized. Yes, and uh, that depends a little bit on what sport you do, right? If you're on a scrum, it's obviously a little bit different from me being a long jumper. But let's say if it's if it's a, a sport that's very close to what we see in athletics, strong enough, that's the, the whole thing. You need to be strong enough because you only function at maximum strength training as is recruiting enough muscle fibers for the elastic components to do the work properly. And that's it. Uh, what basically means that if you look at what athletes are doing these days, so how that shifted is that they just do one session of 45 minutes a week in which some heavier maximum strength training is is done once they're at that level and they don't even try to push it because if you push it, the negatives will outweigh the positives. And then the emphasis is much more on using that recruitment by pretension and, 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 and good technique on the, on the, on the track in order to use your elastic, your elasticity properly. So I would say it's just very quickly over emphasized. Yeah. So the, the As in, story. what would they be doing tip? What would be the, the, how many other sessions would they be doing and what, and what are they focusing on? Uh, that so what I did, and, but also a coach that I really admired it. Eventually it's, you do two strength sessions a week, one of it's heavier, let's say, recruitment kind of stuff, uh, mm-hmm. not re-ambitious, 
and one is based on what I call reflex training. So you use pathways that are enhanced by big reflexes, like substantial reflex and things like that. And that's all very much geared to neuromuscular fatigue. And both are 45 minutes and both are not overly ambitious. Yeah. And then the rest of the time is done on the, on the track. Right. Yeah, cool. And that's with the skills coaches and tactical coaches or physical development with their, or someone who's focused on their athletic movement, running mechanics. Yeah, well, we have, yeah. So it, there's, there's just, an, let's say if you, if you stay at, at track and field, but at, at, at say you have a high jump, right, then you're very much look at how much time you need to recover from stuff, right? And then the main, the main guideline is passive, passive tissue. That is the, the, the big one, right? <laughs> so how many jumps that somebody can do? Let's say, let's say my Olympic high jumps, right? So they can do jumps from a run-up in a safe way between seven and 10 a week. So there's one session with seven jumps, or 10 jumps, depends a little bit on the individual, and then you, you back off, right? Then you can do about, so these boundings, right? Over hurdles or something like that. You can do 30 or 40 in a week. So that's one session of, if you take six hurdles of, let's say, eight repetitions, that's it. Right. And was that part of the reflex strength 45 minute session or that's separate? No, no, that's separate, right? Yeah. So yeah, one maximum strength training, one reflex in the gym, one mm -hmm. hurdles, one from a run up high jump. And then we did one session with sprinting and one, what we call, call off grid, all kinds of things that have nothing to do with high jump. And that's it. And that that's be, where the variability comes in. On that yeah. off was yeah. what was that last session called? You put the variability in everywhere, but that's uh, yeah, just as a back off even more. Yeah, yeah. So that would what, be be the limit of what you could do. What would be some examples of exercises for the reflex strength session in the weights room? Well, it would be varying from single leg cleans or to to balance and then jump on a box or those kind of things. Better, actually, where you make the the patterns of running and jumping in a gym session, mm -hmm. and do it in such a way with weight that is so low that you can do five or six reps, and then after five or six reps, you have this spike of fatigue. That's typically neuromuscular. That's how you recover from that neuromuscular fatigue, and then you can do your second. If you have something where the fatigue goes up very gradual during the repetitions, then it's not neuromuscular. And it's then you're you're actually taxing the muscles itself, the fibers. Yeah. And Shane Leanne's written in a question as well for you, Franz. Do you think traditional strength training negatively influences peripheral motor control? Yes, it does. Because one thing you don't need in traditional strength training is co, co contractions, right? Because it's the muscle against the, the resistance, and that is where the the equilibrium actually comes from. Where if you look in explosive sports, the peripheral motor control is based on uh, properties of muscles, but they need to be activated, and that can only be activated by co-contractions prior to the, the moment they have to correct things. So if I run, I have typically swing leg retraction, 
in the swing leg retraction, I build up the tension in all the muscles. And then when the ground hits the foot, then these muscles can correct hair-ups and that's peripheral control. So if you're running in that direction to the right in strength training with resistance, where you actually need to be to the left, co-contractions, then obviously it can have a negative effect. And that depends a lot on the individual again, because there are people who are not very sensitive to it. They can do a lot of strength training and then have co-contractions as well. But I also know of one, one sprinter who's a national champion. If you would do one heavy strength training session, this whole season was ruined. Everything fell apart and everything. And how could you, how could you, what could you notice is that the shapes, is it his running form, how he feels, like what were the things that you could see where that strength session was having a negative effect? So how he, how he would fall apart. Losing. Oh, oh, injuries. No, losing three or four tenths of a second in 100 meters. His performance. Yeah, I've seen the same thing with with another kid who actually was a world junior record holder in 100 meters, right? Ran 10 seconds when he was a junior, then started doing heavy training, then couldn't run faster than 10.6 or something like that. Then he was advised to back off and start doing more technical coordination-based training, went back to 10.10. But then he decided to do heavy resistance training and went back to 10.60. Those things happen, right? And it's not not happening with everyone. It's people who are robust and, and stay within that same, let's say, yeah, performance window. But uh, there's, there's quite a few people who are very sensitive to this. Mm-hmm. And that's where visualization plays a role, right? Because of positive negatives are not depending on the exercise, but are depending on the characteristics of the individual. And you mentioned something earlier before about yeah, traditional strength training, was it increased the slack of the muscles? Is that right? Do you yep. mind elaborating what that means and, and why is that a, you know, a negative thing for athletic performance, increasing slack? Yeah, well, everybody has, has slack. That means that your muscles are not lined up and ready to apply force on the on the attachment points, right? It's like, you can't see it that way, but if you wouldn't look at my muscles, they, they're hanging like loose ropes, right? Uh-huh. And uh-huh. when they apply force on the attachment points, they need to be shortened, right? And that's called slack. You have to take out the slack of the, of the muscles. Now... Basically, what you do is that you're, if you're in explosive sports, you don't have time for that, right? Because your stance three tenths, one tenth of a second, right? So you have to put, and you prepare that by co-contracting muscles before they have to apply force. So they at a higher level of of tension at the moment they have to apply big forces on the attachment ports. Now. That is done by very complicated and complex coordination of co-contractions. You don't need, you shouldn't have too many. You shouldn't have them at the wrong moment. You should have the right amount at the right moment. So complex coordination. If you do heavy resistance training, that doesn't, that doesn't play a role. You don't need it. And the body is such that if you say, okay, if over here you want me to apply big forces against heavy resistance, the price you pay is that I have less co-contractions and more slack in other situations. Because the body you can't have both. Yeah, it wants to be conservative, right? It wants to, right. to 
And that's why if you do a lot of heavy resistance training and you're very sensitive to it, your slack could increase quite a bit. And then in all explosions force, you go backwards. Interesting. So that's the complexity of that, that you have to embrace as a coach if you want to work with dynamic systems, one of the key key aspects of it. Yeah. And when you're working in, in a sport like rugby where it is combative, how do you find that fine balance between, I guess, have, you know, for the athletes that do need strength training from a body composition point of view, like they need that critical mass, that body armor, but then you're also trying to, like any Jones's team, you're trying to make them fast <laughs> as well. I try to emphasize all the time that if you're in rugby and you want to have more body mass, it should just be in your upper body. It should never right. be in your lower. And I try to get so it then, yeah. when I showed that the under-20s had bigger legs than the national team, right? So you, don't, you should never, ever do any, any hypertrophy training for your lower body because it's detrimental for, for your, your running. Just as a... A thrower should be very careful with anything that's hypertrophy training for the upper body because it's very bad for your thrower. So that's what I try to emphasize, right? If you do, if you need more body mass, make sure it's around your shoulders to protect yourself for, for injury. <laughs> the second thing I try to get across is that you should eliminate all counter movements in all exercises. Don't allow any counter movements. Because the counter movement is a way to take out slack, right? And if you take out slack by making a counter movement, you lose time and you cannot afford to lose time on the field. You have to do it from co-contractions. So that's basically the two first steps that you take. Yeah. And then you have to convince people that that is the way forward. And also something I noticed, yep. for instance, with a team I worked with, there were five or six players who could not do any heavy resistance training because heavy resistance training already ruined their back, right? And they had to do other training, like jump training, and they were just as strong in their legs as when you do heavy resistance training. So you're hardly needed. Running. That makes sense. Uh, also, like Rybakov, former world champion, double world champion, high jump, never touched a weight in his life. He was afraid he would get, become heavier. Still became world champion twice. So it's yeah. not a, a thing that, that you, that you, is necessary, that you need without any restrictions, right? There's a lot of weight around it. And again, weigh the negatives and the positives. Mm -hmm. yeah. And can you explain the difference between attractors and, and fluctuators? I know that's something that you've mentioned before, and perhaps in the context of Australian rules football, if possible, or or, or a field-based sport, team-based, field-based sport. Yeah, let's talk about AFL a little bit. So if you take AFL, right, it's mayhem. It's basically two packs of dogs tied from ripping each other apart, right, without much structure in it, almost. So if you have that, then you have a very complex environment, right? And if you look at the body, it's also very complex. We have a very complex body and a very complex environment. If you combine those two, you're not capable of controlling it anymore. It's too complicated, right? So there's one thing you can do is make your body simpler, right? So where you have 150 joints that can move in all directions, make sure 
140 uh, joints that you don't need to control. And you do that by co-contracting. So a joint gets into its sweet spot and stays there because all the muscles are interacting with each other and you find that sweet spot where you, your joint is strongest. Uh, and those are almost self-stabilizing components of movement. And those self-stabilizing components of movement are called attractors. And that means that you don't need to control them otherwise than just then sending a big signal for stability uh, and that you interact with the environment with only very few components, those are the fluctuations, that then are, let's say, controlled for good interaction with the complex environment. So, body itself has to be made simpler, right? less components, less moving parts, so to speak, and so there are only very few left for, for interacting with the environment. A sport where you can see that in a rather straightforward way is in baseball. If you're a batsman in baseball, right, then you could use all these joints to adapt to the flight path of the ball, the height and the velocity inside out. But what we found is that you only use three joints for that. And all the other joints are not interested in where the ball is at all. If you look at good tennis players, the way they hit the ball, the whole arch action of the arm is actually not interested in where the ball is at all. That's done by the trunk leaning forward, backwards, sideways. So the arm is an attractor, the trunk is a fluctuation. And what you need in AFL, where you have all this mayhem, is that you're very good at using the attractors to make the body simpler. <laughs> so with fluctuations that are perfect for interacting with the environment. Makes that sense. That means you're very good at building these attractors and very good at applying these attractors. So all the more reason to have, I guess, control of your own body in a yeah. chaotic environment. Yeah. 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 I think Harry Simmonton sent through a good question on that. Given that AFL players are generally well adapted to fatigue, by the nature of the sport, it's a very long game. I think it's the longest team sport game in the, in the world. Yeah. What stimulus do you think they are lacking exposure to and how would this influence your approach to training an AFL player? Well, I think what they lack exposure to, at least that's what I experienced, the, the, the number of times that I've been looking at AFL or been involved with AFL. First of all, you, and that's something very Australian, also maybe a little bit worrying, no integration of departments, right? It's completely, everybody's in his own corner, fighting his own corner. So you see exercise physiologists working on the, on the, on the stamina of players and with the things they do, put them on a bike or something, completely ruining their running technique. And then you see each department doing his own thing. So first of all, the integration should be there. And that's actually a complaint I've heard a lot from people in Australia working at the Australian Institute of Sport, but also in AFL and NRL, is we become better at our, our own specialized ex expertise, but we became becoming worse at integrating things. And then coordination should be something that is a very important factor for AFL players, because that's the only way you can protect your body against that mayhem. So, uh, for instance, you have your running cycle, right? And in that running cycle, there are attractors. And these attractors, by nature, because that's what the evolution of a million years has done, are protective for the body, right? 
So if you run into a situation where there is mayhem, competing for a ball, jumping, running to a jump, and then landing and catching the ball and running, running on, then you need to have that protective mechanism switched on, right? And then that very simply means that if you're an AFL player, when you run into to, to the action, your step frequency always needs to go up because then the protective mechanism works better. Each time you see somebody get injured, an ACL injury or whatever, right, in the steps before you see the step frequency go down. So that would be a something in education for AFL players that needs to be in place, right? And there's, there's, there's more. It's, it's just one example of what at this moment I think still is just if you're very talented and very lucky, you do that automatically, but it's not been part of the teaching of AFL players. So you can have stamina till you're blue in the face, right? But you get injured if you cannot protect yourself. And for instance, with ACL, the idea that people get an ACL because they're not strong enough is nonsense. Because I've seen the strongest people I've ever seen on the rugby field get an ACL, like they were strong as an ox, but they just switch off the self-protection mechanism. Yeah. And those benefits of coordination and increasing stride frequency, I imagine, not only midi help mitigate injuries, but also help with performance. So being more agile in the field and move more efficiently. Yeah. Those are, those are the same thing. Would have very if evolution has gone in a way that protects you against injury is bad for performance. That would be a weird species, right? Yeah. Those yeah. And then, so, yeah. Shane, Leanne also sent through another question, the balance between developing motor control and the role of failure in learning, I guess, if we keep it with AFL athletes, if that works or... So, uh, the main thing is that if we want to improve coordination, we don't want to have garbage in our library. Right. You don't want a library where there's a huge amount of books there and you cannot find any 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 copy anymore, right? So what we want in, in our, let's say, library, if you want to talk about it, name it like that, of movements, is that we want to have as little in there that is as efficient as possible and that can be applied in as many situations, right? So with the less content and be able to do more with it, the better it is. So how do you avoid the garbage in, in your library? That is done by things that are kind of a paradox. For instance, one paradox is that you need to be specific. So you have to prove that something is connected with something else, but you also need to prove the opposite, that it can be used everywhere. That's the overload principle. There's another principle, you need to be successful enough for the body to prove that it can be valuable, but also you need to trigger a learning process, a kind of a panic reaction. And that means that you need to be not successful, right? So you need to be successful and you need to be not successful. And then the question is how much success do you need and how much failure do you need? And there's a fair, good, let's say, consensus about that. It's at about 60% of the time, 70% of the time being successful is the sweet spot for learning. So you need failure to trigger it. You need success 
for it to be seen as valuable for the system, 70% success uh, probably is the sweet spot. So when you're running a session with an athlete and uh, you're going, you just basically, the, the drills that you're doing, the themes of your sessions, you just try to stick to that principle in terms of out of 10 reps of, of exercise, if they do all 10 very well and, you, and you're seeing the attractors done at a high level, the next set you would vary that movement, make it more challenging for them for, for a bit of failure until they then succeed that movement and then you, you go through that process. Yeah, it's it's your guideline for making it more difficult. Yeah. yeah. And is there a level where a movement is redundant, or or do you just sort of completely change the drill once the once you've progressed the variability as much as you can? Do you then move on to just a whole different task? Or no, what what actually is is see what we've been talking about now so far is movement as something very isolated, right? But movement has actually another specific property. So first of all, it gets you from A to B, but then also movement influences the information you get. So the sensory information that comes in, right? Okay. If I'm standing still on the field and people are running around, then I see things changing all the time, right? Let's say I have an opponent who's running around me, you see him change the position all the time. But if I start moving with him, he stays in the same spot relative to me, right? That's what movement also does. So movement has that very important task of shaping the information and making the information simple. So it's not just that sensory information leads to movement. Movement also leads to sensory information. And that's what Rob Gray always is emphasizing, uh, sensory motor coupling, right? Keeping coupled. So what you then do if, if somebody is, is good at the motor part, right, is make sure that it also, that second task of making the sensory information simpler is playing a role. And that means you make it more context-related, make it much more context-related. And that leads to a next step, right, decision-making. Because decision-making very often is seen as something very cognitive, but a very important part of decision-making, and that's something that AFL coaches need to understand, is this coupling of movement and sensory information. Because the, especially in AFL, rugby, a lot of decisions are made by just making information simple and not by having a tactical concept in the head. So you can then bridge the gap from what you do with movement, right? Where movement is, is good movement, up to the point where it has a very big influence on decision-making. That's why you don't see any good decision-makers who can't move properly. Uh, interesting. And the invented and sent through a few questions. One, why do you think ACLs are so prevalent these days in field and court sports like your, your AFL soccer, NFL? I think, so if, if, for instance, in female soccer, it's been now a bigger issue, right? A lot of discussion mm -hmm. about it. And they gave all kinds of reasons, and one of the reasons was oh yeah, coordination. But if you look at, after we've been looking at all virtually all non-contact ACL injuries, and they're all the same, it's always the same movement pattern that goes wrong. So what you have if you're on the field, you have face transitions, 
one organization principle and then you jump to another organization principle. There could be acceleration to deceleration, could be acceleration to a sidestep, and, and, and so on. Right? And if people are not capable of making very clean transitions from one organization principle to the next organization principle, they end up in a position where self-protection is not possible. And that's where the ACLs happens. So now if you look at what's happening in a lot of field sports, is that we have got the sheer athleticism up, the sheer stamina up, they're much stronger than maybe they were 10 years ago, but the coordination part of self-protection is nowhere, nowhere at all because nobody looks at it. And the ideas that are out there on that self-protection usually are completely wrong as well. So the reason is this that, that everything has become more intense and the self-protection is, is, is not been taught into athletes properly. Yeah. And the flexibility side of things, that was something that Dean DB also commented on in terms of why do you think flexibility is so underservedly got a bad name? And it's something I've, I've probably noticed as well. There's not necessarily a lot of time dedicated to increasing flexibility in elite sport. But why do you think that is? And do you think uh, it has a side effect on any athletic qualities like elastic bounding, for example? Yeah, first of all, flexibility is an absolute key to self-protection because if you're not flexible, it doesn't mean that all the structures are equally short and stiff, right? Some will be stiffer and other will be longer. That means that self-protection is not possible because you cannot build the interaction between these components properly. So flexibility is, a, is an absolute key to, to self-protection. Let's say I worked with Welsh Rugby and there was one player, Alwyn Jones, who has the, is the most capped player in history, international history. He was very flexible. Like he was very, very precise in, in making sure his flexibility was good. Right? So it's for center protection and health, it's absolutely necessary. And it's underrated everywhere. I mean, each and every AFL player should be flexible or try to get as flexible as you can. And then it has no negative effect on, on, on performance. To put it very simple, if that would be the case, there would be no gymnasts, right? They're flexible as hell, and they can bounce and, 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 and be elastic, like unbelievable. I had two high jumpers, one who was stiff as a doornail, and the other was also did martial arts, so you could, could kick, high kicks and everything, and, and do, do splits and whatever you want. And the boats jumped higher than 230. So there's no connection whatsoever between flexibility and how well you can use your elastic properties. That's a myth. So I would always make it a very important part of my program for self-protection. And for the athletes listening in, what, what's your favorite way to improve either hamstring flexibility, I guess thoracic spine, or also be odd groins, sort of those big and ankles, I guess. The, the big joints, what's your favorite way to improve flexibility in those areas? Well, there's actually one simple rule. Flexibility is a skill, right? So passive stretching doesn't make any sense that somebody is stretching you. You have to do it as a skill. And then as soon as you're, let's say, know what the skill is, then you put it under pressure by making it less stable. So you have to be keeping your your balance while you're doing the, the stretching. And then anything goes. I'm not interested in whether you're 
do static or dynamic stretching because it's just it's kill all of these things are are important right so you have to approach it as a skill mm. okay interesting so yeah keep keeping your balance and then that this is an element of i guess you're not just switching off and you're mentally engaged with the with the task when you're doing flexibility training as if just like you when you're doing a coordinative complex movement sorry i missed that one with with i guess like when athletes typically do do pa passive stretching it you know you're not if you're just lying on your back you might be stretching your hamstring talking to a friend you're not too in tune with with the task it's quite simple if there's balance involved do you feel like it it's something it, sh it should be a challenging task that, that the athlete needs to focus on the on the activity see that, that's how we do stretching if you stretch your muscle that's not active the line of stretch always go to the same pathway right and it can be very easy the case that you're having this pathway but at the the spot that is tight is over there mm -hmm. so that made much sense so what what you should do and there's a little bit pnf kind of stuff is that you're mm -hmm. stretching while the muscle is active right so once we we, we do it with with a hanging trx or a noose and then you put your foot in there and you're on, on one knee in a kind of a lunge with the foot in there and then you can you, you manipulate position of your pelvis and whether your knee is flexed or extended you can find any spot in your hamstring and your hamstring needs to be active otherwise you're you know you, you can't be in that position and then you start to play around that spot and i implement that with a few rugby teams and it took them four minutes and after four minutes said okay you can go we know exactly what we need to do because we feel exactly where the pain or the stretching pain or whatever we feel in stretching becomes very sharp and that's where we need to be because it's a tight spot so stretching active muscles right is, is probably the best way to do it and then you're very much into the realm of coordination right? how can we keep the muscle activated and make sure you don't fall over while you're finding that spot which is tight and then stretch around that spot. Nicole. And one other question from, from Dean. Uh, can you explain potentially the side effects of elastic bounding and increasing flexibility? Yeah, because if you're not doing anything that has to has to, to do with a bit with, with high impacts, but your passive tissue fascias, maybe even tendon or junction, tendon muscle junctions, they get wrinkled up, kind of like dried out spaghetti, right? Okay. Uh, if you want to make that longer, you have to comb it, right? you have to pull on it, and then it, it all gets lined up again. And that's actually what's happening with your, if you're doing elastic bounding, but it also is happening if you're, let's say, do a warm-up, right? So you go to the, the field and you start running, and the first 200 meters you feel stiff and then everything loosens up that's a phenomenon everybody knows it's just a passive tissue that gets aligned in the in the direction it needs to be so spaghetti getting nice and straight again yeah. there you go well thank you Franz. i really appreciate you you coming on the show and, and providing such detail in, in yeah. some of your philosophies and 
your uh, turn and, and Harry are running the practical component of your course in, in Australia at the end of the year and you're running the online component for those that aren't aware and have been fascinated by this podcast and want to find out more information, do you, do you mind shedding a bit of light on the exciting course that's coming to Australia later in the year? Yeah, well, it's, it's quite an extensive course. We aim obviously for a very high quality. People are advised to study the books in advance, otherwise it will be it will be high speed over the head. We have three modules of, I think, five hours explaining videos online each, and that's for two weeks. And then after one module, there's a Q&A with where we make bespoke presentations on the questions people have of this module. So then the second module is again two weeks, and then the third module three weeks, two weeks again. And then when that is all done, People move to Melbourne and we'll have a two-day practical where all the theory is shown in practice by Tim Thomasson and, and Harry. And I think that if you have that whole volume of the three modules theory and the two days practical and you study the book, that you all can make quite a quantum leap into understanding this stuff much better. Yeah, And it's the second year running now. Last year it was successful doing again this year Victoria University so uh, yeah if you want to dive into this field and it's it's complicated so you you should not be having to to dig two uncoherent articles like I have done for years get a little mm-hmm. bit of an old one in then much easier to find your own way off the course into this yeah very good yeah and I caught up with Harry for, for coffee and had a, a great in-depth chat about his experiences in, in your line of work and I, mean, I can really attest to, to the course. I've heard of Turin's work as well and clearly after speaking to yourself, Franz, after last hour of 15, it'd be an invaluable experience for anyone that's interested. So we'll, we'll add the link in the show notes so people can access more information there and I guess a little bit more on Turin. So how long has he been involved in your line of work with the workshops and, and what's his background? Yep, I know him for 15 years now. So he was one of my students in university, and when he has to do his internship, I could send him over to the N-Swiss, Sydney. So he's done his internship there and together with JP as well. He's been working for the National Olympic Committee in, as an SNC coach for women's volleyball and, and a lot of other sports as well. We brought him over to Japan with Japan Rugby in 2015 as well, so he was part of that experience as well. And he has been doing courses together with me now for for eight, nine years, something like that. Yeah. And he's, he's excellent. He's, he's really smart, really takes it very serious, works very hard on it. And he does all the practicals because an old father like me shouldn't do practicals anymore. Right. So uh, that's, that's the way actually we, we, we cooperate. And around that, we got a couple of other people as well, like Lee Agda. There's a ACL course together with Turin, and that's how we build a small group of, of high-level people who can be assistant in, assisting in these courses. Yeah. So Turin is off to Brazil now for a course over there, and we try to improve it all the time we're doing. And I've got access to the app, which has got some great exercises and yeah. drills that, you know, some good visuals. How long has that been live for now and how can people access the app? 
Yeah, well, the app is, is let's say, what actually we do in, in, in our exercise is a kind of a building block approach. We work with, mm-hmm. with the localized attractors and bring them together into bigger units as bigger attractors and bigger and bigger. And that's how the, the app is built. And then you got all the exercises from, from very local to global attractors. So eventually you have exercises for deceleration in, for instance, and as a preparation for what you do on the field and so on. The app, app is now out for second year now. Yeah. They're building extensions to it. So you have the app and then you could, let's say, select exercises and send them to your athletes. That's, that's the next step that's oh, wow. coming. We'll also be in multiple languages. I don't know exactly what's what's happening. It's turns this change lost child, so to speak. And you can access it if you go to the FDS website. There's a button in the top that says app, and that's where you can find all the details of it. Yeah. So each exercise is demonstrated in the video and it has a, an explanation of what the, the the basic meaning is of the exercise and coaching cues, how you should coach it and yeah. That's how you can can work with it. Yeah, yeah. No, it's very easy to use, and the detail is, is like you said, really high level. So, yeah, highly recommend it. Last two questions for me, Franz. We've talked about lots of things in terms of what you've done over your time, including your three books and the workshops, building out your business, and then consulting in elite teams. What's got you most excited for for the rest of 2023? What's sort of on the horizon for you at the moment? What are you passionate about? Well, I, I still work in, in Major League Baseball. What I like over there is how they really took it all in. And the success is also very good. So I want to continue with that as possible. For the rest, I'm going back to a little bit more to my previous occupation and be painting again. So <laughs> as a retired worker. And for the rest, I keep working together with Tony because I like that a lot. And what we want to do actually is develop the content further and further and further. Yeah. Very good. And pet peeves in the industry of high-performance sport, anything that fires you up, makes you angry? Pet peeves, things that... Yeah, well, I put it this way. It's, a, it's what a, a, a Dutch comedian slash singer once said. I like human beings, but I hate humanity. that's great that's why sports everywhere right when you work with individual people then that's very very often it's 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 wonderful but as soon as it becomes an organization and all the politics politics around it it becomes annoying Uh, Mm -hmm. yeah it makes it complicated that's for sure yeah i like that one yeah well very good yeah thoroughly appreciate your time jumping on the show and it has been a few years that like we mentioned off the air of, of you doing a podcast. So I really appreciate Harry hooking this up for us. Uh, definitely a highlight of, of all the guests I've had on so far. This has been a really exciting one. So I really appreciate sharing your work. And yeah, for anyone that's interested, like I mentioned, we'll add links to the workshop that's happening later in Australia. If you tuned in to this live halfway through or just at the end, you can watch this on our YouTube channel. Just search for Franz Bosch, Prepare Like a Pro or The Coordinate Athlete by Franz Bosch and that will pop up and we'll release this on our podcast in the next two weeks so you can find it on Spotify and iTunes. So thank you for everyone that's tuned in. Thank you for the questions from Shane and Peter. 
and Dean Benton as well. And our next live chat is with Jeremy Hickmans and Blake Duncan, who are working in the NRL and the Dolphins. That's 4.30 p.m. 7th of September. So I look forward to seeing you guys then. Thanks again, Franz. For, for anyone that wants to connect with you, where's the best place in terms of socials? The website, probably. Website, yeah. Or add the website link in the show notes. Yeah. Thanks again. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode and want even more, our academy is for you. The Prepare Like a Pro Academy is a platform that hosts exclusive features and bonus content, such as a Q&A segment aimed at getting to know the guests on a more personal level. Here's an example with Emily Meehan, head sports dietitian of the Collingwood Football Club. What are things that, that fire you up? Oh, this one is always, uh, so I suppose it is, um, it'll be topical for most people, I think, but staying in your lane. And I yep. often find that with nutrition, everyone eats, so everyone has an opinion. And I think that's what really gets me fired up um, because so many people try and provide nutrition advice based on their end of one experience when they did intermittent fasting or keto or whatever it might be. And then game changers, sure yeah, game game changers whatever that might be. And look, it probably keeps me in a job, but that it does drive me insane because yeah. sometimes the information can be so detrimental um, and opposite to what I've been working with my athlete or athletes and you know and because they hear it on someone's socials or through a documentary it unravels everything that i've been working with an athlete for yeah yeah another feature of our academy is the opportunity each week to join myself as co-host on the prepare like a pro live chat show here's an example with academy member rama davies the friendly conditioning coach at the box hill Hawks. Welcome, Rama, to the chat. Uh, Rama has also worked at, at Box Hill, or currently he's working at Box Hill Hawks with us, awesome. so he's another Box Hill man uh, in the strength and conditioning department. So I'll handle it over to you, Rama, to, to ask you a question, mate. Thanks for joining us. Excellent. Thanks, Jack. And, yeah, thanks, um, thanks, Sam, for the chat. It was uh, I found it to be really insightful, plenty of gems in there, um, and I enjoyed it a lot. Um, mate, my, my question to you was, you spoke a, a, quite a bit about, um, perspective during that chat. Um, and I was wondering what are some of the things that you either know or, um, do physically that, um, you wish you either knew or did, um, back at the beginning of your career? Uh, what are some of those things? Mm, yeah, good question. Um, yeah, so I suppose with perspective on life, um, that sort of point, um, it yeah certainly yeah has been massive for me now, and and didn't probably have that as much um, when I was younger. Um, I suppose one thing I might mention is is gratitude. I spend a lot of my mm. time um, doing a lot of gratitude exercises, listening to podcasts doing a, a journal every day just to be to say what I'm grateful for sort of three things and um, that's a fantastic way that I've been able to yeah like reset and and just kind of gain that gratitude and perspective about you know that there is more to life than football or you know might be whatever as an SNC coach you know if something's you having a hard time um, it can be massive with just yeah opening your eyes a little bit and losing that sort of tunnel vision or being stuck in that in that work bubble um, yeah. so that's that's been huge um, I think 
I wish back then when I was younger, I asked more questions and was a bit more open to different things. Mm. I think I was a bit single-minded back then and, um, you know, I thought there was one way of doing things and um, if I kind of didn't have that fear of, you know, asking a silly question or fear of judgment, it would have got me a lot further and I probably would have learned a lot quicker. Um, and, yeah. and yeah, like just, yeah, being open to sort of different things because um, you never know what you might find. It's just, yeah, there's so many people, like great people out there, knowledgeable people to learn off. And there's plenty more where that came from. If you would like to learn more, then enter patreon.com forward slash prepare like a pro or head to the link in our show notes. Thank you for listening to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. If you like this episode, it'd be a massive help if you could like, follow, rate, give a review or even share with your mates. The show is recorded in Melbourne, Australia. Be sure to follow our Instagram page for all updates on our latest and greatest. If you would like to get in touch to suggest a guest or advertise with the Prepare Like a Pro podcast, please email me at jack at preparelikeapro.com. Thanks so much for tuning in.